also address the lack of validated biomarkers. And that's the second big thing uh, that we've tried to discuss here at the podcast. And I think through the work that Mazen, Nureddin, Neymar Khoury, Rode Lumba, and also Alina L have been doing around imaging biomarkers, MR, uh, the field has uh, just evolved. And we are clearly, it feels like, uh, taking big steps forward. It's interesting you should mention that because shifting away from this episode to some of the other things that we're going to be replaying for people this week, on Saturday, we're going to be looking at three conversations, three little 15, 18 minute snippets from episodes that were extremely well downloaded. The biggest one, of course, was the one with you and Stephen summarizing what you heard from Scott Friedman and Lars Johansson at the Paris Nash. But one of the other two is specifically about that. It's what was the takeaway from ASLD 2021 on the issue of the need to improve biomarkers and diagnostics in general, but really uh, non-histopathological, um, both MRE and the liquid biomarkers. And yeah, I think that's been another major theme in the, in the field over the last two years, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you just revisit the last ILC, it's not just that we're in the position to actually define those diagnostic biomarkers, but we're starting to discuss prognostic biomarkers with health that has been had, uh, received approval by the FDA in certain populations, histology at baseline, or the whole data sets that we've discussed with the work that's been done by Hannes Hackström's uh, group or recently presented by Quentin Nancy with regards to outcomes in FIP4 or high categories, the differentiation between liver outcomes and cardiovascular outcomes. That feels like light years away from what we were thinking and knowing in 2020 because we're much more focused on, on outcomes, the role of surrogates, which patient population should be included in clinical trials. You know, And if I think back up to our conversations, we had a lot of these aspects were discussed here and in Surfing Nash. And that's what I value the podcast for. It's really state-of-the-art science that's important to the field that's being recapitulated here. Yeah, I agree. And, and frankly, it's a lot of fun. When I decided to do this week's episode, I didn't realize how much fun I was going to have listening to old episodes and saying, gee, people have really you know, changed tunes and thinking about moments and papers that did that and possibly ways that the podcast helped to shape it. So on Sunday, we're going to go back into season two for one thing and then stay in season three for the other two. I think the agency has also become more responsive to the complexity of the disease and the needs of the patients. And we're going to use that one PFDD conversation to talk about how the needs of the patients have factored into all this. Obviously, something that you folks have taken a look at, you and Jeff, because the patients were a big part of what you did in Barcelona. Yeah. And that's the piece of the puzzle that normally as a physician, I think I mentioned that before, I deal with at a one-to-one basis. The one-to-one physician-patient interaction is always very strongly influenced by the individual situation of the patient, what's his coverage, if you're on the US or, you know, what's his distance to my study center? So the, the needs of that individual patient are very different to, let's say, the more global needs that patient advocacy representatives are collecting because they're talking to so many patients and it comes out that there's a certain common theme or common grounds. You know, over the years as a clinician, you kind of get the feeling for that. But I think the value of patient advocacy here is really that they're systematically collecting that input and have developed tools and measures to assess the patient's needs and bring that forward. And the meeting in Barcelona that you mentioned, really aiming to focus on management pathways at which the patient will be a central part of, is very much in need for that strong voice of patient representatives, not the individual patient that might have very different desires or needs, but the general advocacy voice that's needed. And uh, I think that's well included in, in, in surfing the NASH tsunami podcast too. And that's one of the strengths, and I, I'm aligned with you here the, on the value. 
Louise, when we decide to put up an episode asking, is fatty liver the answer to the question, uh, you think that's a good idea? Louise Campbell. Yeah, why not? Both sides of the pond struggle with the definition from maffled to naffled or naffled to maffled or whatever we want to call it. But Jean may have just solved the problem. Don't call it either. Just call it fatty liver and then define it. Given that maffled started in Australia, that's a big pond we're talking about. And, and yes, I completely agree with you. Uh, Jorn, how do you feel about that? Jorn Schottenberg. Interesting perspective. I think it's a very simple approach. But again, I think the efforts Jeff are leading is uh, is crucial because you need a broad consensus and there are different stakeholders involved there. It took quite a while to get to that point, Jeff, and you'll have to uh, report on that on, a, on, on next occasion. It's complex. And um, in the end, uh, I think the consensus through Delphi is the most important point. Jeffrey Lazarus. Thanks, Jaron and Louise for that. And I just sent you a new piece out. There'll be a consensus meeting on the 8th and 9th of July. What I think is important is that nobody jumps the gun. So I'm saying this as someone who, without saying what my opinion is, it's that, you know, we have a process. The major associations have thought long and hard about this. They've nominated people. They're trying to be as inclusive as possible. And now we discuss it because a name change is a big thing. It can confuse patients. It can confuse surveillance, reporting, notifications, reimbursements. There's a lot to the name. We agree that there's a stigma issue. Fine. We need to change it to something. But it's not a popularity contest. This is a complex technical issue beyond even when we if we do take a new name, there's still a, a lot of hard work ahead. Everything from even indexing academic work to be able to capture and work with the National Institutes of Health that, that runs the, the library and Medline. So there's going to just be a, a lot to do and we need to be thinking all the steps through. And like Yaron said, there's a robust Delphi methodology um, in place regular calls and an inclusive process. So Jorn or Louise, before I answer Louise's question, did either of you see a moment of controversy different than the one or non-controversy, but constructive conflict is the phrase I'll use, other than the one that Jeff mentioned as being part of the meeting? I think there was a little bit of discussion about the AI technology that Marcus Rani presented and looking at how that works or doesn't work and how accurate or not accurate it was. I certainly got a feeling there were some people that weren't necessarily I suppose sold on that way of monitoring but is that the fact that technology is moving too quick for medicine or is it the fact that I certainly don't understand how it works in that way and I'd like to know a lot more I just got the feeling there was some interested and more controversy around that than anywhere else in the conference personally. Interesting observation, uh, Louise. And I think I would uh, phrase this this way, that he provides more granularity on the data than is currently needed to reach a clinically decision. The depth of information he gathered also in this uh, self-observations was just phenomenal. It doesn't mean that from each of those data points, there's a direct clinical implication on which you have to act as a physician. But if you look at it from a research site, I think it'll be very informative and helpful. And obviously you need good algorithms because it exceeds potentially one physician's mind to capture the complexity of the interactions in these things. And I think whether the diabetes field has made much more advantages, they, they know well that they don't have to react to each of the glucose spikes to correct this with a drug or something. It's more in, in the diabetes field, it's more to avoid, uh, let's say, hypoglycemia in patients using insulin or being above a certain high 
higher cutoff. From a science side, it's very interesting and stimulating. I enjoyed the bit about the different types of diet that we try and get people to take with the different forms of exercise and how that did or didn't affect the glycemic index on that patient. That was fascinating because we say one thing, we encouraged it, and it did the opposite to, I think he showed, for him anyway, that um, we would have expected in the response. There are other things in his physiology that are a little bit counterintuitive. Um, For example, some of his history with COVID and long COVID. I did a half-hour interview with Marcus this morning that I'm hoping recorded well enough that we can use a lot of it in this because it touches on some of the points we're talking about now and a couple of other things. I think that the controversy around the Mito app and Marcus's viewpoint is in some ways broader even than that which is that if you think of medicine, particularly medicine as practiced by key opinion leaders, it is the ultimate command and control structure, right? I figure it out. I tell you, you do it. I know the data I need. I know the data I don't need. I know the decisions that have to get made. I'm good. This is the opposite. This is boatloads of messy data put into the hands of individuals using analytical algorithms that will address some of it, but maybe not all of it. And then we're trusting that the data in the hands of the individual processed through the algorithm will get you to the right result. It will not be perfect. Question one is, is it ultimately a better solution than top-down command control, where we are never going to have enough hepatologists to see everybody we need to treat anyway? And then question number two is, can we get the data into the hands of the people who need it most? Because the expense of what he's talking about doing, CGM and frequent blood draws and an Oro ring and a Garmin watch, that's not cheap. And if we're talking about downscale socioeconomic groups, the ability for those people to be able to collect that data, unless third parties are paying for it, are really, are really dubious. Although 30 years from now, that stuff might be cheap as dirt and it might be fine. I think it's going to be a lot cheaper, a lot faster than 30 years from now. I mean, th- this field is moving in, in leaps and bounds, but it's clear that this is not designed, you know, for, for the poor, poorest of the poor, or, 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 or even the poor. What it does tell us is that with some, some simple tools, we can, we can get information. For those who want to go all the way, they can buy all the different wearables and, and really get some detailed feedback. But for those who just aren't taking a lot of steps, the doctor can say, look, you're just not moving. There's issues, everything from social isolation to cardiometabolic. There's probably diet issues, you know, and if there's a sudden change, why, why, why this month are you not walking after, you know, what happened? What changed in your life? You know, if you had a broken leg, that's one thing. But if, if you just stopped walking, you know, it can also detect, I think, mental health issues in, in, a, in a crude sense. So um, like, Kieran said, we're not going to need all of that data to make certain decisions. But um, for those who want to go further, they'll have that option. And for those to get some basic information. So the patient walks into the hepatology office after one or two years, they've had an F0, they're coming in for a checkup. You can know quite a bit about them if they and you want to. That's an interesting one because it might give you, you know, if you have data linking it to fibrosis progression, it might give you the predominant driver of the fibrosis progression. I sometimes say that that the disease is very different in different people and you could then more specifically treat. So that's interesting. And of course, if as a hepatologist, after talking to Marcus, I would have thought about maybe there are ways to capture fibrogenesis. He's focused heavily on metabolic changes, which are easier today, but there are some emerging technologies to assess fibrogenesis markers. And maybe this is one way to also assess liver disease more real time than we can do today. So Jorn, to give you one example, if I can get his interview to air, he talks about the work he's doing with people on a 
metabolomics right now, and a couple of other things that are an effort to bridge over towards some of the more conventional measures in fibrogenesis. I th- his vision is, the breadth of his vision is really staggering, and, and the ambition of it, and, and first, I can only root for him, frankly. I mean, not that it's perfect, but I think it's I think it's a really great direction to go in and to start to conceptualize. What I was about to say, Jeff, is I will never throw Jeff out of a conversation, but at whatever point you decide you're so hungry or so tired, you got to go. Just wave your hand. We'll give you closing comments. And- it will be soon. I'll just say that when I, I met Marcus, we were on, for me, at least my sort of ultimate health, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, physical challenge, where we started, uh, we met and, you know, the next day we started walking up Mount Kilimanjaro for five days together. I'll tell you, you know, he was measuring certain aspects of his health. I, I didn't need any measurements. I was just exhausted, tired, frozen. No, I didn't no, I didn't need a doctor or an app to tell me, but um, <laughs> I'm kidding. But we had these great conversations because he could tell me just exactly how exhausted, how low his heart rate was, how poor his oxygen intake was, and, and really sold me on you know, on the importance of this, but not just, we know the importance of it, but also how some of the really simple tools, I mean, I went right back home and, and, and bought some simple measurement tools, you know, that you can use with your finger, because I'm often at altitude, and, and I was curious how it's going to be um, affecting me, and we talked through this, and that's that's why I invited him to this meeting to share this kind of thinking with the liver community. We know about it, but um, he's really, from a comprehensive metabolic health perspective, trying to um, drive that agenda forward, and I'm looking forward to working with him over the coming years. And maybe as Jean said, that's the key. That's the sort of data that you would need in a clinical trial. You can really drill down to look at the difference between your placebo groups and not. If you look at premiership footballers and top and elite sports people, they put trackers on their backs. So it measures everything so that you can get that data. So I suppose it's not that far-fetched from there. And maybe that's more comprehensive, certainly in metabolic trials of liver, fatty liver, of any of the conditions to co-link them with all of the data. So yeah, way more data than we probably need at ground zero, but a lot more data to be able to analyze with AI. So yeah, interesting. But I can tell you, Louise, there was a phase two study that captured just movement of the study participants in order. You know, they were thinking maybe we can tease out the placebo response and they were overwhelmed by the data. So they couldn't even, you know, bring up the manpower or the computational power to set that into perspective in an individual. So it takes a lot. And I think maybe smart people like Marcus Rennie and their and his technology, but it's not a straightforward shot. I don't think anybody, well, let me amend that. Anybody who understands the complexity of statistics in general, Joran, I think would agree with you staggeringly quickly and completely about that. The great thing, though, is the computational power gets so much stronger and cheaper all at the same time that if somebody has mastered the, the right kind of stats, they can start to take a dive at some of it. Jeff, anything else you'd like to bring up for us to discuss before we let you eat and sleep? Two things I know are really important to you right now. Nothing more from my side, whether or not this makes the um, podcast. I just want to thank Surfing the National Tsunami, you, Roger, in particular, and, and you, Louise, who also stepped in and, and chaired the patient forum in the morning. I've thanked you many times with many different hats on, but it was just fantastic to lead this this meeting, Tim. Um, and I don't know if you were on when I was asked earlier, Yaron, by Roger, but I mean, the palpable energy in the room, in addition to the amazing scientific talks, just how fun it was, just how engaging it was. People all working together to get to the bottom of this, to find solutions, innovative 
creative or otherwise, but the innovation was the collaboration. So we will do this again in May 2023. We'll do at least one halftime webinar to, to bring folks together and, and chat. Nothing like the real deal, but you know we'll keep the momentum going. I'll look forward to seeing whoever's going to be in London next month for the International Liver Congress. And again, thank you for being our, our media partner at Inc. BCN Innovations in NAFLD Care Barcelona. We will be back um, in Barcelona by popular demand. And thank you for that podcast you prepared to help us launch this. It was just terrific and I think made a big difference. Our pleasure being part of all this because I think it's what you're doing is important. I have to put in a word for my uh, co-host and your co-presenter, uh, Dr. Schottenberg, who wants to know what it's going to take to bring everybody to Frankfurt for an event at some point in the future. But we'll leave that one for today, Jeff, because... I'll tell you what it will take. I have an answer to everything. And I think I'll be there on the 8th of June because the Hepatitis HIV in Europe conference that I co-founded, but I still sit on the program board for, decides that the easiest place for everyone in Europe to meet is about eight kilometers outside of Frankfurt Airport in this hotel in a field. And we go, there's nothing else to do. We plan the meeting. So I will be in Frankfurt, but only in the airports because apparently it's the easiest airport for everyone else. Jeff, I have a sense that that statement, there's nothing else to do, does not exactly bode that you will be highly sympathetic to putting major events there. I don't think we'll be going to Frankfurt anytime soon. Jörn <laughs> <laughs> also mentioned Berlin. We, I could sell Berlin. Boy, you can sell me Berlin in a heartbeat. (laughs) I think um, we're good off in uh, Barcelona. And again, uh, the the much personal note that was also uh, brought in by Jeff is much appreciated by all speakers. And I thought really uh, just echo his words and give it back. It was uh, phenomenal. And the discomfort, John, on your face when he started to take his clothes off was something I shall never forget. Or anybody else who was physically watching. (laughs) You you didn't know that was coming, hey? Well, I guess we're a good team. I thought you in that moment were, were deadpan brilliant. In fact, I... I didn't know whether you knew what was coming and you were acting as if you didn't or didn't know what was coming, but you were so damn good it didn't matter. No comment. (laughs) It should should definitely be the first TikTok video with Tick and Talk. Yeah, we can say naive, naive inspired. This was the real world, not TikTok. (laughs) No, but you know what? It could actually wind up, Jeff, being the first TikTok video from a Nash meeting. Naive's hired. His seven-year-old's hired. I like it. I like it. Thank you all for, for having me back. I'm going to take a break. I've been in this chair most of my life, it seems. So have a good rest of the podcast, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks. See you soon. And thank Bye. congratulations again See on a fantastic later. meeting. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingthenash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Surfing the Nash.